Tune into opportunity. Disrupt Radio. Entrepreneur Her. Business by and for women. Hi, it's Mo here. Welcome to the very first Entrepreneur Her podcast. Entrepreneur Her is simple. Business by women for women. Each week, you'll hear one of my favorite interviews from the show. You'll hear from women who are dominating the world of business. Now, baking and Formula One car racing are two things almost never connected. However, that's the very short life story of Australian entrepreneur, Kate Reid. From school, she dedicated her life to getting a job in F1. And she got there becoming the only woman engineer in the whole company of 500. But despite her dream job, she was unhappy. Her life changed when she got a book all about baking from her local library. Kate, you have a shop near my house in fancy Almadale. Oh. In Melbourne, Victoria. (laughs) But every time I drive past any of your shops, there's a line around the corner. I want to go keep going back because I think your F1 and your story and I think the family love behind that is quite beautiful. So you go, you study for five years to be this engineer because your goal is to work in the F1. Yep. Which is pretty cool. And then you come out of uni, what's next? So graduate uni, 22 years old. Loved the five years of university, including a year spent over in Germany working for Volkswagen um, in their diesel engine department. And I I thought I was going to go over there and absolutely, you know, learn so much and be this like diligent, hardworking practicum, which is like an internship. And I just discovered independence and drinking and partying. And so I had like a bit of a wild year in Germany, but then came back ready to settle down and, and finish my degree. And But you took your books with you, so clearly you were still studying. So yeah, I think 100%. everyone's allowed to enjoy life, right? Because well, it was the like- first time I ever had because, you know, from 13 years old when I decided I wanted to design F1 cars, mm. I'd just been laser focused about my study. Mm. Like I went through, I was so annoying at high school. I went through high school sort of being judgmental about, you know, my <laughs> friends that were like drinking and doing all this naughty stuff. And I'm like, well, I've got my life sorted. What are you doing? Mm. So I had a bit of a, a loose year. I hope yeah. that they came back to you on that. They've boomeranged you. <laughs> How dare you enjoy life? Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, graduated and I was offered straight out of uni a job to work at Ford Australia, which was, it was a great straight out of uni job, but I always knew that it was just a stepping stone. Like you can't just expect to leave uni and get a job in F1. Mm. You know, there's, I think, say at the team that I ended up getting a job, there was maybe 30 aerodynamicists. And if there's 10 teams, there's 300 jobs in the world. And everyone that's studied aerodynamics that loves cars wants those jobs. So Mm -hmm. they're like the hottest seats in the world. So I'm working at Ford for this year. I apply to do um, a motorsport engineering master's at Cranfield University in the UK. It's partially sponsored by the F1 teams and it's widely considered to be the golden ticket into F1. I get accepted to study this. I start sending letters to every racing team I can think of, like 
F1, F3, F3000, all the way down to like rally teams, Formula Ford, whatever, just Mm. asking for work experience because I've got this master's coming up that I'm going to move to the UK for. I get everything from rejections to complete silence or like, hey, thanks, but no thanks. And then one day I get home from work and there's a letter and it's from the Williams F1 team and I open it expecting a rejection and they said, oh, we're actually looking to recruit entry-level aerodynamicists we'd really like to interview you. So oh this wasn't, God. yeah, this that wasn't voluntary. Getting a letter. <laughs> I know. Like, <laughs> did it come from an L? Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? That is the coolest thing ever. Did you just say, did it come from an L? <laughs> an L. An L. <laughs> That is the coolest thing ever. Yeah, it was a mate, the letterhead and... You saved it, right? You still got it? I don't know where it is. I know. You need to frame that. Yeah, I know, seriously. So you get this letter, the interview, it's... I'm assuming your first call is your dad. Yeah, but the interview was actually interesting because the senior aerodynamicist said he'd call me at 8pm on a Friday night Australian time. So I went to work that day, came home, was too nervous to eat (laughs) and then 8pm came and went and the phone didn't ring Mm. and I was devastated and I waited the whole weekend to hear from Williams as to why they hadn't called. And then finally, Monday comes and goes, I'm at home. I've like cracked open a bottle of wine because, you know, (laughs) haven't heard from Williams. I'm having it with my dinner and the phone rings and they're like, oh, sorry, we didn't get to you on Friday. Everything, you know, all hell broke loose in the office, but um, we'd just like to interview you. And I've had you know, a glass or two of wine. Anyway, it was the best interview of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it makes sense. That is... Well, I think I was just relaxed and and not expecting it. Whereas maybe when they'd interviewed me on the Friday, I was so worked up and nervous about it that I might've stumbled over my words. It's probably a good thing, right? Look, it resulted... I'm sure you would have smashed it anyway, but having less nerve. I'm I'm not encouraging people to drink wine before I go, but I'm just saying I probably wouldn't. My interview would probably be 10 times better if I had a glass of wine, to be fair. Well, I think, as you said, regardless of whether it had been on the Friday as planned, ultimately, a couple of weeks later, I got an email from Williams with a job offer Mm. um, asking me to move to the UK early January the next year. So I'd gotten my dream job, which was pretty wild at the team that was my dream team. That's, you know, that's a planet lining up. I have two questions. Your dad, how was he when you got the news? He was so excited. Like, I think he'd lived this whole journey with me. I was probably a pain in the neck during university as well, because <laughs> I think our contact hours at uni was something like 40 to 45. So it was a full-time job with classes and lectures mm. and tutors. And then I'd come home from uni and I'd study until, you know, 3 or 4am every morning and finishing assignments. And at the time I was still living with mum and dad, other than the one year break in Germany. So they supported me throughout it. And I'm a stress head at best. I was probably a nightmare. So he'd really lived the whole thing with me. And I think he was just, he was probably as thrilled as I was. So then, then you get this job, you get this dream job. What's that like? So initially, like I still remember the first week at Williams and just walking in on that first day and being taken into the full-scale wind tunnel. To be a bit technical, they had two wind tunnels. One was a 60% scale that was still. So it had a model in it that the wheels didn't move. It was just totally tethered. Mm. But then the full scale had a rolling road, which means that you can test the effect of the wheels actually rotating on the airflow over the rest of the car, which is super important to understand the real effect of aerodynamic parts. They took me into the full scale wind tunnel and the F1 car was in there being tested. And they then invited me into the tunnel and they were like, oh, you can go up and touch it if you want. And up until this point, 
the closest I'd gotten to a Formula One car was sitting in a grandstand at the Australian Grand Prix with it going past me at 300 kilometres an hour. I mean, to sum it all up, it was a pretty wild experience to be so close, to have such tactile access and to be standing in this multi-million pound facility that tested the cars, doing what I'd studied all this time for. That was definitely a pinch myself moment. In the first week, I also got to meet Sir Frank Williams. I was working at about eight or nine o'clock at night in the office and he wheeled his wheelchair in and he wheeled past my desk and I saw his head stop and he reversed and then he looked over into my cubicle and went, oh my God, it's a girl. I was the only female working in a technical capacity at Williams at the time. And so obviously to him, that was something noteworthy. And so Frank and I shared the disabled toilet in the aero facility because they didn't have a female toilet in the building at the time. That is unthinkable. Yeah. I'm assuming mm. they do now. I hope so. You know what? I haven't asked. <laughs> Give <laughs> him a call. Send him a letter. <laughs> exactly. With a letterhead. <laughs> How long were you at Uh, with the F1? I worked at Williams for a year and then towards the end of that year, I was approached quietly by another team now known as the Aston Martin team, but, Mm. you know, they were originally the Jordan F1 team and they said that they were looking for aerodynamicists and they were interested to talk to me. It was kind of being headhunted and one of my colleagues I spoke to in confidence at Williams and they recommended that I try the interview because... The team was smaller. I might get a little bit more experience and a little little bit more opportunity for responsibility. At this point in time, while I felt like I'd achieved my, you know, getting into my dream career, the actual work wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It wasn't as stimulating. There's so much money and resource and like the best brains in the business working in F1. And prior to getting the job, I'd spent a decade imagining that this industry would be incredibly creative, collaborative, brainstorming, really thinking outside the box on problem solving on you know, how to design, improve the design of the cars. And the approach at Williams at the time wasn't anything like that. We were mid-pack, so we weren't winning. And when you're not winning, all the sponsors are putting pressure on the team like, hey, you know, we've paid millions to have our name on your car. You need to figure out how to go faster. And you're just trying to figure out how to catch the cars that are ahead of you. So there's a lot of negative pressure applied to staff. They use sort of scare tactics like 3,000 CVs landed on the desk last week. That's a bit full on. Yeah. So you end up working 16 hours a day, often seven days a week, night shifts. Trying to figure out how to make a car go faster. Yep. And as such, because it's negative pressure, the office is incredibly silent. Mm. So we were discouraged from having conversation with our colleagues. I mean, networking Um, would be the best thing, right? Having a conversation, working at roundtable how to do it. Wouldn't that be the best approach? Well, you would think so. Mm. And that's what I did think. But the environment and the culture was very different to what I'd imagined. And so I hoped that moving to the second team might improve that. But when I got to the second team, the culture was possibly even worse. And again... I think there was one other female working in that team, but they had less money and they were further down the pack in terms of success. And as such, there was just more pressure. And because there was less people working in the office, there was more pressure applied to each person. And at that time, I think my mental health really started to slip because this thing that I'd been dreaming about for over a decade and I'd worked so hard to get to and I'd left my beautiful family behind and my country... It really wasn't panning out as I'd expected. So it went undiagnosed, but I'm 100% certain I had depression. I ended up actually leaving that job after, I think, about eight months. A friend of mine working in 
marketing in F1. She got me a job working for this company that was kind of a middleman between sponsors and teams, Mm. working in corporate hospitality and doing activations and things like that around the world at races. Doesn't sound like you. Well, I mean, it was probably my dream job. In was the it? End. I mean, like, I love the technical side. This was people-focused. It was travelling around the world. It was actually experiencing the races, working with people, and also had hospitality involved in it. Oh, that's nice. But by this stage, my mental health was so far gone yeah. that there was kind of no pulling me back from it. So the mental, well, the mental illness, it translated into an eating disorder, and I was eventually diagnosed with anorexia. But it got to the point where my partner at the time, who was also an aerodynamicist in F1, he didn't know how to deal with me anymore. And he called my dad and said, hey, I'm really worried about Kate's health. I can't do anything about it anymore. I think she's too far gone. I think she needs to come home. So dad literally packed an overnight bag, jumped on a plane, flew to the UK, packed up my life over there and flew me home. That's an incredible story. And I'm sorry you went through that. When did Loon happen then? Yeah, it's, that's a good question. <laughs> um, because you've built this empire. Yeah. So ironically, and it's torture, but when you have an eating disorder, all you can think about is food. You know, it's literally your body sending signals to your brain all day. Why are you starving us? Mm. Let us eat. So all you can think about is food and you don't dream about healthy food. You dream about the thing that you love eating. And I've always loved baked goods and pastries. So instead of eating baked goods, I would come home from work and I would bake. And I get to live vicariously through the process of bringing together all the raw ingredients, following this methodical recipe that if you didn't follow to the tea, it wouldn't work out properly. And then you'd pull out of the oven this you know, beautiful smelling chocolate cake or whatever you'd made. But then you'd get this added benefit of taking it into the office the next day and just seeing the simple and pure joy that it brought people. And, you know, in this high pressure environment where everyone's head down, you know, not talking to each other, it provided this 10 minutes of everyone finally coming together, albeit over a baked good, Mm. and smiling and laughing and enjoying this thing that they were eating. That's where your love started. Yeah. So I came back to Australia. I never wanted to be an engineer ever again. Like probably say I hated F1 at this stage. It's hard to describe. It was something that like I couldn't watch it on TV. I couldn't talk about it with my dad because I guess it had turned out to be something that was so far from what I'd imagined. So then how do you take this experience that you had watching people enjoy what you're making and then turn it into something that's got people lining up around the block for? Well, I got a few jobs at cafes in Melbourne working as a pastry chef, but I was doing simple things like cakes and biscuits and brownies. And at some point in time, my technical brain got a little bit bored of the simplicity Mm. of these types of baked goods. And I started to become interested in French pastry. So I borrowed this book from the library about Paris patisseries. Mm. And I got it home this day after work and sat down on the floor of the lounge room and randomly flicked the book open. And it landed on this page. It was a double page photo of pain au chocolat. And they were all stacked up on a counter, but it was a really zoomed in photo and you could see every perfect lamination of the pastry. And I was so hypnotized by this photo that I closed the book and walked back up into Camberwell and booked myself a ticket to Paris at Flight Centre. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you want something, you go for it. That's quite evident. Yes. <laughs> Takes one to know one. Yeah. So I ended up in Paris a couple of months later on this trip. And my last day in the city, I thought, well, I have to go to the boulangerie where the photo was taken. Mm. So I walk up to this beautiful Belle Epoque boulangerie on a corner in the 10th arrondissement. And there's this neat little queue of 
slender, beautiful people snaked out the front of it, all waiting for their morning croissant. So I join the back of the queue, get to the store. I'm completely entranced by it. The counter is just covered with every imaginable viennoiserie Mm. you can think of. And viennoiserie is the family that croissants come from. Finally get to the front of the queue and try to explain in broken French to the vendeurs or the sales assistant that I've seen this photo in a book and it made me book the trip to Paris. <laughs> so she went and get the owner who spoke English. I told him the story. He wrapped up a few pastries and gave them to me for free and said, that's just made my day. Thank you. But then I couldn't stop thinking about the experience of this boulangerie. And the next day I sent him an email just thanking him for the pastries. And at the end I said, look, I don't suppose you'd ever consider taking me on as an apprentice. And he said, look, no, no one in the bakery speaks English other than me. Uh, We're very small. We don't normally take, you know, people that don't have experience in some format. But for some reason, I can see the same passion and motivation in you that was in me. Mm. So yeah, when would you like to start? Oh my God. Yeah. So then you called your parents. I'm not coming home again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually went home and, and then came back to Paris. Yeah. And I started the apprenticeship as a stage, which is an unpaid internship in hospitality. And the agreement was I'd do a three-month stage and at the end of it, myself and Christoph would talk if we thought that I had the ability to do the full apprenticeship. Mm. But after a month, and I was going really well, like probably that month in Paris is still one of the happiest, most fulfilling times of me working for someone Mm. because I was learning at a rapid rate this thing that was incredibly technical and complicated and delicious and I was learning it in another language. So every part of my brain was like... Excited. So we are talking about you starting, building your empire. So you've gone and had this month of, I guess, kind of training. You've come back. How did it then turn into 200 staff? Well, I came back and all I wanted to do was continue my learning. I came back because the business I was working for before I went to Paris asked me to come back. They were expanding and they wanted their whole pastry chef team back. Mm. But I came back thinking I'd either return to France to finish the apprenticeship or I would finish it in Australia. So I became obsessive about going to bakeries on my days off in Melbourne to try and find a bakery that was making a croissant that came anywhere near the ones that we were making in France. Did you find one? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say you wouldn't say anyway, would you? <laughs> oh, like the croissant scene was terrible back yeah. then. And, you know, I was just met with anemic, sad, pale margarine. So now you've got how many stores across Australia? So we've got five stores across Australia, three in Melbourne, two in Brisbane, and soon to have two in Sydney. Holy moly. And every store I drove past, doesn't matter the time of the day, there's lines. Well, I think Armadale might be Melbourne's best kept shh, secret shh, still. Shh, we're not hey. talking about Armadale, man. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to have to line up. Okay. I don't want to have to line I've got a toddler. You know what it's like to line up with You don't want to have to line up no, with a toddler. I won't talk about Armadale. I don't want to have to go to the front and go, I know Kate. Okay, (laughs) I don't want to pull that card out. (laughs) So everyone lines up. What I'm intrigued about, the question I want to ask you is, how are you sure that they will wait? Because that line, they wait, right? And it's because they're waiting for the quality of what you make. How do you make sure that line never goes? Well, you can't. Like, you can't force people to stand in a line. Mm. And I never started the business expecting that there would be a line. All I did was I just wanted to make the best possible croissant that I could make and something that Australians had never experienced, maybe unless they'd been to France and experienced like I had. I have not been to any other country near a croissant, but did the New York Times not say it's the best in the world? They did, and that was a pretty wild day. So this was the original little store that we had down in Elwood. Mm. By this stage, about 18 months in, my brother joined me. So it was me and my brother 
we were opening, we'd open this little like barn door two mornings a week. My friend Matt Perger, who was a world champion barista, he'd come and sit on the stairs next to me while I baked and just keep me company and I'd give him one croissant because people would start lining up at 2am. See, Kate, for me, she is the definition of inspiring. She brought in some of her croissants and let me tell you, the New York Times, they got it right because these were the best croissants I've ever had. If you want to hear more about women killing it in the business world, then you can catch our live show every day, two to four on DAB Plus or online at disrupt.radio. And remember to follow Entrepreneur Her on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you next time. Entrepreneur Her. Business by and for women.